You're listening to Wake Up Call with Christina Previtt. I'm the CEO and co-owner of New Jersey Divorce Solutions, a law firm located in Edison, New Jersey. I've been practicing exclusively divorce and family law for the past 16 years. Everyone has a story. I interview them. Wake Up Call is an opportunity for you to hear inspiring stories from people who are making hard decisions, overcoming their fears, and living their most authentic life. Hey, everybody, you are here for another edition of Wake Up Call Live, the roundtable series. Thank you for joining me today. And my guest today, uh, are again, Diana Schimmel. Like, you might just be a co host eventually, Diana. <laughs> Uh, but for those of you who don't know Diane already, she is Diana Schimmel. She is a divorce and family law attorney in the greater Philadelphia area, as well as South and Central New Jersey. She's the founding one of the founding partners at Martine, Kat Scanlon, and Schimmel. And a first timer here is Kristen Henninger. She is also a divorce and family law attorney with her own practice in Manahawkin, New Jersey. So welcome, both of you. Thank you. Thank you for having me back. It's always fun. Thank you for having me on. I'm excited. Of course. Thank you for saying yes and giving me your time. So we're back for another topic concerning the Depp v. Heard trial. I promise everybody I, this is not going to become the Depp v. Heard show because I think we're all starting to get a little bored with it now that the trial has, has wrapped up. But one topic that has been just burning the airwaves on Facebook and Instagram amongst us lawyers is what the lawyers did right and what they did wrong. So every topic I've, I've done thus far on Wake Up Call Live, we always end up on that topic, even though that's not the topic of the day. So I just thought we just got to make it the topic of the day. So here we are. That's what we're here to talk about. Some critiques of the respective attorneys on the trial. So who wants to start? Let me know what your thoughts are. You know, I'll, I'll take this one because I was waiting with bated breath, I think, like everyone, for, for the verdict. I think there was even a whole host of sub-memes about people saying, why would they release it when school was getting out at the same time? And it was just funny. But I think that um, everyone really wanted to know if it had been successful in terms of the campaign that Johnny's um, attorneys had launched or not and, and what was going to happen. And I think for me, um, the biggest... I think, uh-oh, for Amber's team was, I think they took the complete wrong approach and strategy. I think that they thought she was going to come across as this victim, um, someone who would get the sympathy uh, as a Me Too survivor and someone who was advocating for other women and, and victims of abuse. But as it became very clear, and I think as we talked last time on on our, our podcast with Jill, uh, Christina, that there just was so much inconsistency and she became this unlikable, almost villain. And as a result, it really tainted her credibility. Um, what I thought that they should have done was actually turn this more into a First Amendment free speech case. I think everyone forgets this at the heart of the matter was a defamation trial. So this was not a criminal proceeding or a family court proceeding regarding the domestic violence or the abuse allegations. And if I was Amber Heard's uh, counsel, I would have said that this was, you know, anti-free speech, an attack on her First Amendment rights, because really this was a ghost written piece by the ACLU 
published without naming Johnny's name directly by the Washington Post. And I think that had they really capitalized on the free speech piece of it and garnered some of the positive, I think, momentum that the validity of the Constitution and the sanctity of the Constitution has right now in, in the moment, um, they would have been a little more successful. And they could have made it about that as opposed to having to rely on a somewhat shaky, uh, credible witness um, about whether or not, you know, she was successfully able to convey that she was a victim or not. Yeah, I completely I agree. agree with that. I completely agree with that. I, I feel like the First Amendment was an afterthought in the closing arguments. Um, I believe it was uh, Ben Rottenborn brought it up almost, almost like, oh, hey, and it's about First Amendment rights as well. And I think that was really the whole crux of the Amber Heard legal team was just they were completely unprepared in everything they did. They should have tackled the First Amendment um, as their main point of the defense, and they didn't. Um, and when you look at everything they did, it was just a level of unpreparedness throughout their whole case. So they didn't have a good defense. They didn't prep their witnesses well. Um, I think Amber Heard came off as completely unlikable. The whole turning to the jury, every time she answered a question, it was just so uh, almost manufactured. Every move she made, instead of uh, more organic testimony, which I think Johnny Depp gave. I but I just yeah. yeah. That's what I've heard throughout from so many different people is that at the end of the day, she just did not come across as credible. That was really the problem. And I think some of the things you've already pointed out kind of lend itself to that is because I, as an attorney, it was annoying me watching her constantly looking at the jury. And I understand you're sort of putting on a show for the jury, but it's not natural when you're looking at someone and they are posing a question to you it's, it's a natural human reaction to address the answer to that person who just asked you the question, not to always turn around and look and, you know, address the, the jury. So I think there was a better way to handle that. She did it throughout her testimony. So it obviously was not something that her legal team was attuned to because they would have corrected her. Right. And we never saw that. Um, but I, I want to address the first amendment issue because I'm, you know, we all do family law, so I don't have a lot of exposure to defamation issues, but doesn't the first amendment issue really only go so far? I mean, you can, you can say what you want, but only to a certain extent. I mean, the issue here is she was saying things that were not true, or at least, you know, the jury seemed to believe that they were not all true. So well, that's how where I think defamation stems from it's a it's a protection you know from anyone just saying you know fire in a crowded theater that's the whole you know seminal case of this but i think what the the defense team missed was the opportunity to say because this is a defamation trial a johnny's claim is too attenuated and doesn't really rise the level of defamation and then b flip it back on him as an attempt to squelch free speech so we have a very um, significant and well-founded um, tenant in our country that you have freedom of the press, you can say what you feel, and what I think this has now become, and what I think is the real detriment, and what I don't think her defense team realized was, now when we have a true abuse claim, does that victim have to worry about someone bringing a def defamation action against them, claiming, oh, 
they don't actually have that freedom of speech because of the the deaf be heard you know uh, verdict and i think what this has really done was squelch that that freedom of the press that freedom of speech it was an op-ed it wasn't you know labeled as you know fact-finding reporting and again it was attenuated ghost written originally by the aclu without naming his name and and i think that had they even cast a shadow of a doubt on that issue i think it would have helped them significantly and just also to to clarify about the witness prep piece too i think regardless of the tactic and the overall strategy a good lawyer has to be able to control their client on the stand as much as possible. I think we've all had rogue witnesses. We've all had clients say things that we don't expect them to say. Same thing on cross-examination of hostile witnesses. But they're really, to me, look like there was no prep of Amber and consistently throughout no adjustment or re, you know, recalculation either. So I think that that's, you know, that's that's poignant. But to go back to what you were saying, Christina, yes, there are checks on the First Amendment, but I don't think this was it. Or and I think that they also could have said that she had enough leeway to say what she needed to say. And let's not forget, she had a two week break with her attorneys in between her direct and her cross examination. And when they were able to redirect her, you would think in that time, those 10 days, they would have jumped on that opportunity to say, listen, you've got to do this. You can't be combative when you're um, being asked questions. You have to stop facing the jury. I mean, that's a gift that none of us have. We usually, you know, come in on a restraining order case and we have two weeks total to prepare um, for the final restraining order hearing if we're lucky. Um, this was, you know, years to prepare. And then you got a two week break in between your testimony. That was a gift. I yeah. And I'm sorry to cut you off, Christina, but I also think there were some procedural things that maybe we as lawyers saw that maybe the general public didn't. But the first that struck me was venue. And I know a lot of people were, were scratching their heads about why this was in, in Virginia and not in California. Um, and that was absolutely a tactic by Johnny Depp's team. I, I want to be really clear, Camille Vasquez, who was really took the lead in this, her main practice area at her firm is defamation. And she is licensed in, in California, but they purposely selected Virginia because it has really, really lenient um, rules when it comes to defamation. And also, if you look at the jury instructions, there just had to be defamatory intent. So it was a really, really low standard, which again was why I thought there was a missed opportunity for the First Amendment claim. But if I was John, uh, Amber's attorneys, I would have thought a little harder about the venue. They, they were claiming on the the, her, the Depp team that it was okay to bring it in Virginia because the servers for the Washington Post were in Virginia. But if you really look at that, are we not setting this up for a slippery slope because everything's in the cloud, you know, people tweet from different states, servers are everywhere, you know, are we just now venue shopping? And I thought that that was something, again, that I didn't think the herd team fought back strongly against. Do you, do you happen to know if there was motion practice on that issue in the beginning? Because I know no. we didn't get to see a lot. I don't know if there was motion practice on that in the beginning, and and I wonder if there, there was, but I also thought that, you know, trying to discredit 
a little bit of the validity of Depp's claim could have also been part of the opening and the closing, as opposed to just this focus on whether or not there was mutual abuse. I, I don't think that the, the herd team took advantage enough of highlighting or spotlighting the manipulation of that venue choice or of, you know, the um, the, the true underlying nature of, of First Amendment rights that they could have. Because I think what happened here was it became the spectacle of who abused who more yeah. as opposed mm-hmm. to the legalities of it. Yeah, it did. It did. Um, I, I think, too, um, Kristen, I think you raised a good point is they sort of failed to course correct. You know, I, I almost it almost seems to me like her team, they failed to see the weaknesses in their own case. Even now, they've been doing, you know, a a press tour, it seems, and they're still kind of harping on what they were from the very beginning. You know, I think as lawyers, we have to kind of see how is our case being presented? How is it being received? You know, in family court, we don't have jury trials at not New Jersey, but you kind of get a sense of where your judge is leaning, right? And if your client is not the the one that's coming out favorably in that situation, you try to reassess, you know, how can I present this better or what maybe I should focus on a different angle here um, to put my client in a better light. It maybe I missed it, but I didn't see that happening with her legal team. It's like they just kept pressing harder on what, what, you know, the way that they were trying to present her. And it just wasn't working. And I feel like the more they pushed on, you know, trying to present her as this victim, uh, it just, I think it hurt her. It made her look less and less credible as time went on. Um, I think one of you mentioned this, and I've seen this by some commentators on the news. At the end of the day, Johnny admitted his flaws. You know, he admitted that he wasn't perfect. um, But Amber never really did that. You know, she was very consistently throughout really just painting herself as a victim and didn't seem to acknowledge that there was any wrongdoing on her part at all. There was no accountability from her, even if she owned one thing that, you know what, I did say that on the recording and here's why I said it. There, it was always an excuse. It was always a reason. It was always somebody made her. And and just like you said, we've all had cases where there have been weaknesses in our cases, where we have a domestic violence victim who maybe sent some really bad texts to the other side. And you bring those out. You, you bring it right out to the forefront and say, hey, I did send these text messages. I used profanities. I shouldn't have. I was upset about what happened. And I think that with the trier of fact, in our case, it's usually judges, not juries, but it almost um, shows that you're human. And I think the judges appreciate that. And I know it's been commented on cases I've had over the years that, you know, when there's one side that just has a blanket denial of everything, the judges don't like that. They have a hard time believing that person. I completely agree. And I think that that's the failure of, of the herd team is that they didn't take a step back and look at how Amber was coming across. I think even starting from just her appearance on the stand. I mean, I've counseled clients about what to wear. I've counseled them about demeanor and body language. I've told them, you know, don't cross your arms or don't jiggle your leg, even things as simple as that. And I think they did her a big disservice by not really taking it from ground up. Um, And I completely agree with you as well that to have her come across or try to come across as this perfect angel, this perfect victim, it really didn't help her. And that was something that was her legal team's responsibility to adjust. 
and to counsel. So maybe they didn't need to feed her the actual lines because, of course, we don't want to coach in that way. But they should have expressed to her, maybe don't ramble as much. Answer the question excuse me, directly with a yes and a no. And then be clear, you know, in your response, but don't let it go on too far. There were there were places where she used wording and words that I would have said to her to leave out. And I think it just it really added to the unsuccessful nature of her testimony. It makes me wonder if they did a run through of her, you know, the questions they were going to ask her at all. Or with any witness. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Um, I felt like all I'm sorry. Yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. I felt like all their witnesses were not prepared. Um, they were combative. E- even a- being asked questions by Amber's own legal team, the one um, doctor, how did she not know she wasn't able to read from her notes? That I, I was yelling at my TV that day uh, when that happened. How was she not counseled by their lawyers? It was their witness that you cannot read from your notes. And if you forget anything, we'll help you. Just say, I don't remember, and then we'll refresh your your recollection. But the woman was reading straight from her notes and then angry when somebody challenged her about it. Yeah. Um, Yeah, there were just, I mean, we could spend all day going over all the objections. Um, But some of the more common ones, obviously, there were a ton of hearsay objections. And it sort of became apparent to me that I don't know how many people in the room actually (laughs) knew what hearsay was. And I, I started to see... One party would make an objection, but they wouldn't even say the basis of the objection, which we know you're supposed to do. And then the other side, well, in particular, Amber's attorney would just say, I don't think that's hearsay or I laid a foundation. And I would have liked to see a little more lawyering happening other than just you know, making these statements that draw a conclusion with no reasoning behind it. Um, but I think most attorneys in America who are watching that were very frustrated with the way that a lot of the objections were handled. Um, if there's any in particular that you guys saw that were really driving you crazy, please feel free to share. There was the one where her Amber's attorney objected to his own question. And I thought that that was such a rookie, rookie mistake. And I think, I think that lack of unpreparedness and they they weren't even able to really think on their feet as well, I thought, as you know, the, the depth team was. And, and this I think is also, you know, really important is to know the law that you're arguing and stick to it. Camille Vasquez, if you look at her bio on her firm's website, she specifically focuses on defamation. So she obviously had to have some of the other team there for, you know, being able to wave into this other state. But her focus is defamation and reputational crisis management. So she had almost a dual role of not only knowing the law inside and out, but also the PR of it. Whereas Amber's side, I think they thought that they had the leg up in terms of the legalities, but they really didn't. And they focused on the wrong side of the law. Plus, they weren't able to manage the PR of it all. And I also think it was a big mistake for them to allow this to be publicly broadcast because this took it completely out of the court of the judiciary opinion and the jury opinion and put it right into the public opinion. And that hurt them well. So they really were out out lawyered with that, with the procedural piece. Yeah, I've heard that Johnny's team really fought hard to have it televised. And we can see why. Uh, You know, Johnny, I've said it before, he's just this beloved actor that we've known for decades. And he's very popular. And 
he's attractive. I mean, not as attractive as he used to be, but you know, he's still Johnny Depp and he's charming. He's very, yeah, charming. very, he's very. very charming. And he knew, or his, at least his team knew that they could really use that to their advantage. And they certainly did. And they've also them. worked with him before. So there were a couple of right. fiduciary duty cases that they worked on with him. So they obviously had a really nice, cohesive relationship. And you could actually see it, you know, in the videos that we saw. So I think that also helps when a, an attorney and a client team jive really well and they understand and can work, you know, in that way, it works well. Whereas I didn't see that connection with Amber and her team. It was almost like they were somewhat at odds with each other as well. Right. And I think that impacted the defense too. Do you think they got to a point though, where they just realized we're losing? They, I like they yeah. lost their fire. That's what it they did like. at a point. They did. And I, I feel like the, the pivotal moment of when that happened was when Elaine, who I, I had sympathy for, um, said, I'm trying, I'm trying. Like I, I really felt bad for her when she said that because we don't have to try our cases on a global stage like this was. And I don't know how well I would do if I had the entire world critiquing my trial skills. And yeah. I really felt bad for her until she started her press tour of shame. That sympathy kind of waned after that. But um, I felt for her when she said that. She she just couldn't think on her feet quickly. And then she's sitting there saying, I'm trying, I'm trying. And my heart went out to her. Um, but I feel like they really lost their steam after that. Yeah, I think in addition to losing their steam, they just weren't prepared enough. I mean, as somebody who's so type A, I prepare even to a fault. Over prepare. Over prepare, yes. right. And then it's not like they knew, or it's not, excuse me, it's not like they didn't know that this was going to be on a global stage. It's not like they didn't know that this was going to be broadcast. It's not like they didn't know that there was pressure here. And also, I think that, that they were a bit um, flippant in the implications of what this trial could mean for future defamation trials, for future DV trials, for future, you know, um, free speech trials. So I don't think they really grasped the gravity of it. Whereas on the other hand, I think the Duck team totally knew what they what they had and what opportunities they had, and they pounced on it. And then they exacerbated that when they saw that the other side wasn't really responding, you know, with any kind of fight. Well, do you think that maybe they were just a little too comfortable because Johnny did not get a favorable result in the UK? Do you think they kind of thought, oh, this is going to be easy? He'd already lost in the UK. Yeah. They might have. Uh, yeah. And, and the UK standard is completely different. So, and just because you tried it once there doesn't mean you're going to get the same result here. And the, the venue that they chose was completely different. So Virginia really, really has a, a much more lenient legal standard. And I think that was a big misstep on the herd team, too, to not realize that, you know, you can't just lean back after you've gotten a, a decision in a completely different arena, you know, and, and hope that it goes the same way for you. You have to actually put in the work again. And the I UK wonder, court was very different. I mean, even the parties yeah. were different. It was Johnny Depp suing a newspaper publication, not Amber Heard. She was just a witness in that trial. So it wasn't like he was trying to get a second bite of the apple here in the States. It, it was a completely different standard and a different case. Yeah. I'm too bad that one wasn't televised. I could have watched that one too. <laughs> but, um, you know, well, something else that I've heard frequently is a reference. At least I saw this on the Facebook comments that this constant reference that Camille was is so young and almost like they didn't see her coming. 
And I kind of wonder how true that actually is. It may be. Uh, because she looks young. She's been practicing law, I think, 12 or 13 years. So it's she's, not like she's right out of school. Right. She's exactly my age. We graduated college and law school the exact same years. I'm 37. So she's exactly my age. Don't even get me started about the misogynistic implications of that. But that's a whole other <laughs> podcast for a whole other day. But I think they really did think that the lead attorney who was he, – he's licensed in um, D.C. and Virginia – and I think he was obviously sitting there pro hoc vice, which for the, you know, the, the layman, it's, he's the one that was the tether to the licensure in Virginia. And then she's able to practice if he's sitting at the table, but they should not have been surprised. Camille's bio specifically. And if you compare hers to Brian's on their firm's website, she's got the defamation, you know, practice group completely as her focus and specialty. So they should have been more prepared with her. She's impressive. She was. Very she is. She was very polished. You know, she, you could tell, and you're, we keep going back to preparation, but she had her, she had notes in front of her. She was referring to them. She had a plan. She knew what she was going to ask, how she was going to present, you know, the story that she was trying to tell through the testimony. And that was just something I didn't see from Amber's attorneys. And she could course correct. You know, we, we all know that when you take testimony, you don't always know, especially on cross-examination, you don't know what they're going to say. You have to be able to kind of do a little bit of it on the fly, right? You, maybe you don't get the answer you're looking for, but you course correct. And she was very good at doing that. And I didn't find that Amber's team was very good at doing that. And even if, even if they had all their questions in front of them, there was just a certain polish that I felt like was lacking, like a certain composure. You know, Camille really commanded the room. Composure was the word I was exactly going to use and poise. And she also was able to field some of Amber's reactions that were meant to be sassy or snippy or combative much better than the other side was able to field Johnny's. Because Johnny was giving them a little bit of a run for their money, too. He was clearly very smart and had come, you know, to learn a thing or two about the legal process. And you're right. She didn't let her tail feathers get ruffled. She wasn't, you know, flustered. And that was what we were seeing more so from the other side was a sense of, of any time Johnny would say something they weren't expecting to be exactly on the script they prepared, they couldn't, they couldn't couldn't pivot. And it leads me to, did they really prepare their witnesses? I know I sit down with my clients, even for a DV trial, and I will hammer cross-examination questions. And I will try to do it in the most aggressive fashion to know that this could be the the far end scenario of you having a very aggressive attorney firing, you know, cross-examination questions at them. They get upset. Why are you questioning me like that? I say, I need you to know what could be coming at you. Um, and, and this is the type of questioning you may get. And this is for a simple DV trial. Um, I, I just can't imagine that they didn't do that. And, and I've described Johnny Depp's legal team the whole time. They were a well-oiled machine. I agree. And that's part of our jobs as attorneys, not only to advance our client's case and our client's goals and make those points clear, but it's also to anticipate what the other side is going to throw at us. And it seemed to me like the uh, DEP team did that. They had their own really well-crafted case strategy and, and theme, but then they also knew what possible ways the herd team could go. Whereas herd, I think they just took a sort of lackadaisical approach to their initial strategy. And then really it seemed as though they were not prepared for any of the potential options that were going to be thrown back at them. And they also didn't coach Amber on that. 
I think Amber came across as very surprised that there were certain things that came out from the DEP team that she absolutely should have known about from her counsel. Yeah. Um, you have to be able to anticipate what the other side's arguments are going to be. I mean, we learned that in law school. Isn't that right? right? I mean, like day one, we learned that you have to be able to make arguments on both sides and obviously be able to predict what, what would the other side, how would you present the case if you represented the other side? I always find that to be really valuable. Did you guys watch the closing arguments? Mm-hmm. Yes. Well, so what were your thoughts about that? Go ahead, go ahead, please. Uh, so obviously, again, it was completely lopsided in terms of how the debt team presented their legal arguments and how the herd team presented their legal arguments. Um, they brought the debt team brought it full circle from the openings to the line of questionings and then to the closings. And I always, I actually coach mock trial for high school. I'm a coach for the local high school team here, Southern Regional. I'll give them a plug. Um, that and i always try to sit with them when we're beginning our preparation that we need to have an idea of a starting point a middle and an end and the closing has to bring everything together like the real full picture and johnny's johnny depp's team did that masterfully um the her team i didn't really i got lost i got bored at one point uh i think i left the room for a while it was just it wasn't engaging it didn't captivate me like ben chu and camille vasquez did yeah, I think that there was a real sense of theatrics um, and presentation with the DEP team. And I always say to my clients, the closing argument is the time, as you just said, to, to sew it all up, to, to make the point, to connect point A to point B, to, to really drive home your final point. It's the last thing that the judge or jury hears. I thought that the, the herd team sort of gave us the same level of, of lack of polish that they had been giving us from the entire you know time. Had I been giving you know the closing, I would have made it this whole commentary about the First Amendment and patriotism and free speech and what would the founding fathers have wanted you know for our press. I would have made it the spectacle of the First Amendment and stood up on my soapbox about it and really taken that opportunity to recover from maybe what was not, you know, so great during the hearing. And they just didn't. They didn't they didn't take advantage of the opportunity to save, to take one last chance to save, you know, their their case. And they they missed it, I think, in my opinion. Yeah, I think I would have tried to emphasize too, and hopefully if I was her attorney, I would have also been able to read the room, which how could they not have been looking at social media when they went home? They had to see that there was just overwhelming support for Johnny. And the jury is supposed to be representative of the public, right? So it stands to reason that if most people on social media are really hating Amber and loving Johnny, it stands to reason that the jury may feel the same way too. I think they failed to see that they failed to sort of address that um, and treat this. I think maybe my angle would have been, you know, this is a legal proceeding. This isn't about whether you like Johnny or like Amber or, you know, who you think was, was the wrong, the wrong person in the divorce or whatever, you know, cause this was a lot of people treated this like it was a car accident we were watching, mm-hmm. but I think at the end of the day, they could, I think some of the language choices that they made in the closing struck me. For instance, her attorney kept saying, if this, then Amber wins. If that, then Amber wins. And I'm thinking, I was like cringing as he was saying that. And I think, I don't think he should be saying that because they don't want Amber to win. 
Nobody wants Amber to win. I would have phrased it differently that, you know, you must find in, you know, find that there's not defamation or something like that. Um, rather than looking at it as though one person wins and one person loses. Cause I think, you know, you can paint a picture based upon the language that you, you choose to use. I think the fatal flaw, I'm sorry. I think the fatal flaw was when Elaine said, this isn't about the money. We don't even want the money. This, I mean, that would have been the perfect opportunity to say, we're asking for a hundred million dollars because of his egregious conduct because of this frivolous lawsuit against our client. But it was a toss away. We don't need the money. We, we just threw out a number. I mean, I, when she said that, my mouth dropped. I thought that too. And I, I think, Christina, you make a really, really good point that there's a psychology behind the words that we choose. Like I know for me in, in custody hearings, if I'm referring to the other side, I purposely will say like Mr. Smith or Mr. Williams instead of father, because I find that father makes it more sympathetic as opposed to like a generic, you know, term of Mr. or Mrs. Um, so I think when they were saying things like Amber wins, when they already had some things stacked against her reputationally, I, I agree that the psychology behind their word choice wasn't there. But you actually also hit on another point that I thought was a missed opportunity for the, the herd team was why was this jury not sequestered? So they were able to access absolutely everything we all were. So, and where, where was the impartiality there? I, I had no idea why they didn't sequester them. Well, the judge did give instructions every single time they broke. I know, <laughs> yes. I know. But she did say not to, to Come on, watch I mean. it. I know. I mean, we're human beings. I mean, how can you even avoid all of that today in this day and age? Right. You really can't, even inadvertently. So I thought that was, again, another big mistake from, from the herd team, legally, procedurally. Well, as attorneys, I would have loved to, I would have loved to hear sidebar. I mean, every time they, you know, muted that out, I was like, oh my God, I want to know what they're saying. <laughs> um, but I would have loved to be privy to pretrial motions and everything pre-trial that happened. And what I'm dying to know, which we'll never know, is were there ever settlement negotiations? Mm. That's I, a really good point. I don't I don't know if there ever were, um, if there was ever, you know, an initial letter. Weren't there, I thought that there was, you know, some kind of communication, that, like a cease and desist, but I, I don't know. I don't know specifically. I, I'm actually more curious to see if there's going to be an appeal and whether or not they're going to do anything, you know, post verdict. So two things about Virginia, and I actually read up on this after the verdict, they do have, I believe, a 30-day period to engage in settlement negotiations now after the verdict. Um, so Johnny Depp does have the opportunity to say, listen, I, I won't take the full amount that's been ordered. Um, so they can engage in that. And two, if she wants to appeal, she has to pledge the amount, pledge the amount that uh that which means she, the same as donate right, yeah. <laughs> and i believe it has to be deposited into the uh the court's account she has to deposit i believe 8.35 million dollars before she could even appeal Ooh. Mm -hmm. does she even have that much i don't know i don't think she made that much from her the, career. Cost, oh, man. the cost of this litigation is huge and that was actually something that i saw in some of the discussions about the impact of the verdict was if we have victims now not wanting to come forward and you know 
being cautious about what they're saying because it could potentially be defamation. Defamation suits are extremely costly. It's not like a DV trial or a criminal trial where there's potential for assistance with legal counsel or legal representation. Um, it really is just you know, a, a hemorrhaging of money. And I think that's what also Johnny knew going into this was that he had more of a financial leg to stand. So he took advantage of the fact that he could potentially bleed Amber dry. And I don't think, you know, she anticipated how, how costly this would have been. I'm sure. And it sounds like didn't anticipate the result. And that's something we tell our clients no. too, is clients, you know, they're as laymen and people emotionally involved who can't be objective. You know, we try to tell them we, I can't guarantee you, guarantee you a result at court. You know, I know you think that you're right and you think that you're entitled to certain things, but the law doesn't necessarily support that. And you've got all these other factors, human factors that you can't really account for, like how attorneys are going to perform in court, how the judge is going to look at things. Quite frankly, is the judge having a good day? You know, what other cases did he or she have in front of him before? I, I, these are all sort of wild cards. And I'd be curious to know what those conversations were. Um, but at, there was a point at the early in the trial, I think when Johnny was presenting his case, he was testifying. And he had all those recordings. And those are very powerful. It's one thing to hear somebody explain, well, this happened. And she said this and that. But it's another thing to actually see pictures or hear it for yourself, like as though you're there. And I thought those were really powerful. Um, you know, I am one of those people that way back when she first made these allegations, I believed them. And because I thought, well, I don't think she, you know, she didn't punch herself in the face. I don't know. Maybe she did. And I, you know, I, I was always sort of a fan of Johnny, not like a crazy fan that's going to go watch him at the courthouse and be cheering for him. But, you know, as I said, he's been this beloved actor for decades and I was disappointed. Like, really? Oh no, Johnny, no, yeah. you're not a wife beater. And so when this came out, I have to say a little part of me was sort of team Amber. But then when I heard his testimony, I heard those recordings. I was like, wait a minute. You know, this is not exactly the way that I, that she had presented it and portrayed herself. So, you know, that really hurt her. And I would love to know if, if they even during the trial, if there were any settlement offers that were extended, because at some point I thought if I represented Amber, I feel like I would just say, look, let's settle this. You yeah. know, I'll, there's got to be some kind of public statement that could have been made that would have appeased him because I don't think he was after the money. I think he was really just trying to rehabilitate his public image. I think so too. I think it was about ego and rehabilitation of public image because he is starting to work again now and he hadn't for quite some time. And I think he even made some comment and this was during his testimony that he wouldn't even go back to work with Disney on the Pirates of the Caribbean movies. Oh. But even though that was the biggest chunk of the lost wages, but you know, you, you made a nice point about, Oh, she didn't punch herself. Actually, she fumbled her testimony about this, and this I thought was another place that her legal team didn't counsel her accordingly. She she interchanged the words bruise makeup kit and theater makeup kit and then contour makeup kit, and I think this got actually put into a couple reels where if I was her attorney and we were practicing or rehearsing or going over um, what she should say in her choice of words, as soon as she said bruise makeup kit, I would have 
been all over that and clear to her about how even if she chose that word incorrectly, that just signaled like a red flag. I'm lying. I, I put that makeup on myself. I bruised my own face. So that was that was a, a pretty huge, huge thing. And I think you also hit, made a really nice point that the recordings and any kind of evidence that you have that you know is going to be very, very, very strong, you focus on it and you don't want to dilute it with some other evidence. And I think Johnny's team selected the key pieces of evidence that they knew were going to be catching and and be you know sound bites for the for the jury and the public whereas ambers i think didn't really focus on that and it muddied the water of their defense i i agree and you know christina like you i was when when i remember those pictures on people magazine of her bruised face and i said oh this is awful i can't believe johnny depp's a wife beater <laughs> uh you know well what a terrible situation and then I watched the trial and I completely turned around. I had no idea any of this really was going on until I tuned into the trial. But um, I definitely think with her, I think it shows how out of touch she is and how her team was out of touch with what the public tenor was in terms of Johnny versus Amber. And it just went to show you with the recordings. Some of her recordings were so awful. I can't imagine that why her attorneys thought it was a good idea to use them. But then again, with Johnny Depp's team, I think I would have used that to my advantage. And I would have when I was cross examining her. And I, I don't remember Camille touching on this. And, and I would have is in any of those recordings, why don't you ever ask your husband? Do you feel bad about hitting me? Why did you hit me the other night? She lived her life recording conversations with her husband. She could have gotten an admission on tape that could have been used against him. But she never asked him because it never happened. Right. Yeah. It's it's sad. I mean, I think I think despite what happened between them and the, the defamation and the divorce trial and all of that, I feel like really what we're just seeing is sort of an extension of their relationship imploding. You know, we all have those family law clients that they get divorced, but they're just never done. There's always post-judgment motion practice. There's always some new thing that they have to fight about. And there are just a small percentage of couples. They'll always do that. They'll always fight. They will never be over it. They really will never move on. And I think that's what we're seeing with these two. Unfortunately so. And I think that there were some missed opportunities to put this to bed, um, you know, by, by Amber's side. And Johnny's team, I think, really did that successfully. They they said, look, yeah, there might have been drama, but here's, you know, the story definitively from Johnny's side. And they I think they've really, you know, solidified that in, you know, in the in the history of this as the period to the end of the sentence. How exciting would it be though if it gets reversed and they have to have a new trial? <laughs> What will we do with ourselves? <laughs> I don't know. Well, I'm definitely going to have to put aside some time to, to maybe go watch it in person and have a blog or something like that. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you. Thank you, ladies, for joining me today. I feel like we could we could just, you know, go do clips and and really get into the weeds from a legal perspective as to um, objections and things like that. But um, maybe we'll plan that for another day. But thank well, you for joining me. Yeah, sure. Thank you so much. All right. And thank you for watching Wake Up Call the Roundtable series. We'll see you next time. Have a great weekend, everybody. Thank you for listening to Wake Up Call the podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you'd like to know more about me, you can find out more on my website, christinaprevitt.com. 
And be sure to sign up for my newsletter where I talk about everything that I'm reading, learning, listening to, doing, basically everything that I'm obsessed with right now. Follow me on social media. Look up Wake Up Call the Podcast on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. If you'd like to be a guest on Wake Up Call or there's someone you'd like to hear on my podcast, please email me at wakeupcallthepodcast at gmail.com. Thank you and see you next time.